HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, We're going to be talking today about a really fantastic book that I just read um, called Lethal But Legal, Corporations, Consumption, and Protecting Public Health. The author is Nicholas Frydenberg, uh, who is the distinguished... Oh, sorry, the professor of public... Unfortunately, my smartphone has just stopped being smart, and now I can't find his updated... um, uh, biography, so I'll apologize to you in advance, Nick. Um, but anyway, you you are and have been the Distinguished Professor of Public Health and Director of the Directoral Program at CUNY's Pu- School of Public Health, located at Hunter College. You're also something else, which you're going to tell me in a minute. Uh, you have written or edited five books and more than 75 articles on urban health policy, HIV prevention, community mobilization for health, and the role of food policy in health. As I said in a minute, a minute ago, your most recent book is Lethal But Legal, Corporations, Consumption, and Protecting Public Health. This is published by the Oxford University Press. And what a barn burner, sir. Congratulations. It's a great book. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's Glad a pleasure. So correct my biography since, I, since my smartphone decided to go to a dictionary and not go away from the dictionary. What did I miss there? Uh, I'm also the faculty director of the New York City Food Policy Center at Hunter College. Thank you. Uh, That's a center that does work on food policy here in New York City. Excellent. Okay, thank you very much, and I apologize for that. Um, So let's jump right into this. Um, You, in Lethal But Legal, you describe something called the corporate consumption complex. Let us discuss what that is and which industries did you identify in this book as participants in the corporate consumption complex? Well, I describe the corporate consumption complex as that network of consumer corporations, trade associations, and uh, law firms, advertising firms, public relation firms that they use, the scientists, elected officials, and journalists that they hire to advance their agenda. And 
in the book, I uh, make the case that this corporate consumption complex has become the primary influence on health and wellness here in the United States today. And I borrow the term from a term that Dwight Eisenhower used when he was leaving the presidency in 1961. He used the term military-industrial complex. Right. And he warned Americans that it was a threat to our democracy and our well-being. And I believe that today it's the corporate consumption complex that is a threat not only to our health but also to our democracy and to the environment that sustains life. Well, you make a very, very powerful case. I mean, honestly, Nick, just your introduction was like the... <laughs> The smoke was practically coming off the page, man. <laughs> it was like, it's scary Whoa! stuff, isn't it? It's really scary stuff. And I have to say that the way you, the success with which you connect all the dots and the thoroughness with which you address all the dots makes your case very strong for, you know, this concept of basically our democracy, if not our brains, being undermined by this complex. Um, so, Let's talk about, uh, let's first of all, which are the, the industries you identified are food, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, uh, automobiles, and I'm missing one, right? Pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals. How could I forget? Oh, my God. Yeah. So, and these all come together in a very interesting way because, of course, we all participate in uh, those industries as consumers and um, and we all rely on them in many ways as consumers. So Exactly. And they're also a, a, a really a critical part of the global consumer economy. They yes. also happen to be, as I describe in the book, the, their products and practices are associated with the two leading and growing causes of death, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Uh -huh. And that's chronic diseases, things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, right. and injuries, particularly injuries related to cars, guns, and alcohol. Right. Wow. Damning stuff indeed. Okay, so uh, let's talk about how these corporations rose to wield the kind of power that they wield now in terms of uh, influencing legislation, uh, influencing people's minds, and decisions that they make about what they're going to consume and how they're going to consume it. How, how did we get here? It wasn't always like this. No, and I trace the uh, beginning of the current uh, dominance of corporations to the late 1970s. Yeah. And I think there are uh, two sets of factors that explain their rise in that period. The first, inside this country, the social movements of the 60s and 70s, the environmental movement, the mm -hmm. consumer protection movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, had won new rights for people. And in just those years, in those two decades, Congress passed and Republican and Democratic presidents signed 49 pieces of legislation that regulated these six and every other industry in America. Mm -hmm. And I believe the rise of the corporate consumption complex was a response to those uh, advances in public health and consumer and environmental protection. And that's they like felt the that environmental their protection. Power agency. and prerogatives yeah. were being challenged, and so they wanted to take it back. And so they launched an assault, and the game plan for that assault is really laid out very succinctly in the so-called Powell Memo, uh, a memo written by Lewis Powell, who was a leader uh, 
in many corporate groups, including the Chamber of Commerce. And he said corporations need to go on the offensive. They need to take back the initiative that we've lost to uh, ordinary citizens. I think the other dynamic leading to the growth of the corporate consumption complex was changes in the world economy, globalization, uh, the increasing uh, concentration of many industries, the growing financialization, the growing role of banks and investors mm. in setting how corporations. So in the earlier part of the 20th century, many companies were in it for the long run, and they could afford to make decisions that would uh, ensure profits over the long time. But with a rapid uh, change in the economy, they became much more focused on the short run, on the returns every quarter and every year. Yes. And that led them to cut corners, to put products in the market in hope of getting quick returns and to be much less concerned about the health effects and the environmental effects of the products they produced and the practices they used. Yes, it became profit over people. Well, one of the quotes that I picked out of the book that just really, I thought, exemplified what you are, you know, what you're saying was what corporations fear from government. And this is to go back to sort of the Reagan, uh, that late 70s, early 80s period where Reagan said government is not the the solution, it's the problem. But, But corporations fear from government is not loss of individual freedom, but their right to set the agenda to design, market and distribute their products with as little interference as possible irrespective of the health, environmental, or social consequences. And I think you just laid that case out perfectly, because um, that is indeed exactly what's happened. It's, it's, it's absolutely profit over people. And, uh, and, and it, we can see it play out in the newspapers every day uh, with all of these fools in government saying, climate change? What climate change? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, bubble? What bubble? I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. The other thing that, um, that I wanted to, uh, to get into right away was the idea of the externalization of costs, and that ties into an editorial that I just read in the Times today, which I thought you might find interesting as well, and probably saw talking about tax havens and the hidden cost of, of or rather, the social cost of hidden money. And essentially what happens is, is that uh, companies are able to pass their costs of their harm, be it environmental, be it uh, physical in terms of like an untested drug causing problems or something like that. They pass those costs of lawsuits onto consumers and onto the government. So let's talk a little bit about that because uh, you had a great quote about that too. If you don't mind, I'll read it. Um, it re- this uh, government became the problem. Not this. this represents an amazing bait and switch by big business-minded leaders in the U.S. By failing to tax businesses, they rob other government programs of the tax income needed to carry out their social functions. And uh, and then when the government bottom line looks bleak due to the dearth of tax revenues, it's the social programs, not the freewheeling corporations that get the blame. And then today in that editorial in the Times, it said that we are, that uh, corporations are, are able to hide about 20% of their revenue from taxation, which represents about a third of the tax base of the United States. And, you know, this whole thing, I mean, we got to take this one apart. Tell me how this happened. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I think you're asking about two things. And let's talk yes. first about externalization. And then let's talk about tax evasion. They're both yeah. very important. Uh, and, and they're actually connected. So by externalization refers to, as you said, passing on the health and environmental costs of products to consumers taxpayers, the victims of illness. And I think 
the tobacco industry provides a very clear example mm. where it's all of us that had to pay the health care costs through Medicaid and Medicare and through our health insurance premiums of people who became ill from uh, their use of tobacco. And a positive story is the master settlement agreement between state attorneys general and the tobacco industry, where the tobacco industry had to pay states uh, $240 billion uh, beginning in the late 1990s to compensate them for those tobacco-related costs. Mm -hmm. And that uh, helps to serve as a deterrent to uh, putting on the market dangerous products. And if we had a tougher uh, policy of requiring companies to pick up those costs, the incentive for the gun industry, the food industry, the pharmaceutical industry to uh, spend a little more time thinking about the safety of their products before they put them on the market and uh, advertise them aggressively, we would have uh, far fewer health problems than we have today. Yeah, I mean, I think when I think about, for instance, the cat, the meat industry, which is something that I cover a lot on this show, um, and I've been covering the whole antibiotics issue and the and the really. Uh, just extraordinarily uh, sh shocking lack of will on the part of the government and the FDA to protect our medical arsenal, uh, you know, by allowing meat corporations to continue to feed their animals, um, you know, antibiotics at will, essentially, even though they've sort of they've changed the guidelines and it's voluntary. And one of the things that I noticed that came up a lot in your book was the fact that whenever any sort of breaks are, tr are attempted to be put on to some of these corporations. It's always a voluntary approach. And I, and you know, I, why is that? Because they're able to tie things up in, in legal battles so long that it won't matter, which is essentially what's going to happen with the uh, antibiotics issue in livestock or is yes. there? Yes. I think it's in part, uh, government always wants to uh, maintain control, not to uh, give control of their, uh, business practices to the public and to government. Mm -hmm. and But the unfortunate truth is that all the independent studies of these voluntary programs in the tobacco industry, in the alcohol industry, in the food industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, show that they don't work very well. Companies no propose <laughs> uh, voluntary guidelines that are much looser and uh, more flexible than what uh, public health professionals would encourage, and then they don't even follow those guidelines. And we've seen that repeatedly. And really, only government has the mandate and the resources uh, and the authority to protect public health. And it's a sign of the abdication of its responsibility that government has been willing to cede that uh, that really that obligation of government and turn it over to industry when all the evidence is that industry is not willing or able to step up to the plate to take that on seriously. Oh, absolutely. I mean, asking industry to police themselves is, you know, it's just a recipe for failure. Um, but I will quarrel with you over the idea that the government has the resources because, in fact, you know, the Federal Food and Drug Administration, for example, does not have the financial resources even to uh, monitor the quote-unquote voluntary guidelines of withdrawing antibiotics from the livestock sector. I mean, there simply are not enough people out there who are joining this government body or agency to, um, you know, to 
provide any kind of well, enforcement oversight. I think that's a very oversight. deliberate part of the strategy of the corporate consumption mm-hmm. complex, yes. which is to, uh, you know, the, the, the saying was, starve government until you can drown it in the bathtub. Yes. And I think <laughs> the, another way they undermine regulation mm-hmm. is by, through their uh, the congressmen and senators that they've supported, right. they uh, defund the agencies, they restrict their flexibility to enforce the law. So today, uh, many regulatory agencies, for all of the six industries I talk about, you're absolutely right, they lack the resources. But I think the point is still right that uh, only government, an independent voice, mm-hmm. has the ability to do that monitoring as compared to these voluntary guidelines. And even though industry might have the resources, they don't have the will. It's uh, voters and taxpayers that need to strengthen the backbone of our elected officials to insist that the regulatory agencies are given the authority. Because yes. we, we see when they fail to enforce that, the, the, the result is uh, threats to health. The recent uh, evidence that General Motors uh, failed to correct a problem that they'd known about for years and years in uh, the cobalt, where there was an ignition problem. They could have fixed it for a part that cost only a few dollars, but they refused to do that. And because the National Highway Safety and Transportation Authority didn't have the resources and the will to monitor the the General Motors more aggressively, Mm -hmm. many people lost their lives. That's an example of what happens when we don't uh, enforce the regulations that are on the books. Well, what's interesting is that that case paralleled very much the Pinto case in the 70s, which did uh, end up forcing some changes in the auto industry, but that was because the government finally really took action. And the, yes, and, the and it's also and because safety. of Ralph Nader exactly. and the consumer protection movement and right. his book uh, Unsafe at Any Speed. Exactly. And it is worth mentioning that as a result of the uh, tighter regulation of the auto industry that came about in the uh, 1970s, our death rate from automobile crashes declined dramatically, mm-hmm. but it's still much higher than other countries that do a better job and a, a more stringent job of regulation than we do here in the United States. Incredible. Very interesting. Um, I want to go back for a second to what we were talking about in terms of, um, you know, the the, uh, the tax evasion, uh, which has resulted in um, uh, basically axing social programs rather than forcing corporations to pay their fair share of the tax burden. Um, the thing that uh, really concerns me about that is that basically 50% of our population, given how polarized the nation is politically, believe in less taxation, don't seem to think it's a problem that all of these corporations aren't paying their fair share, and indeed don't agree with supporting uh, programs that benefit the poor or the elderly or children. And I wondered, you know, like in the face of all of this, like how do we summon the political will to uh, a suggest to these uh, Republican-minded conservatives that social programs are actually good for the economy, and b that so, that corporations should actually pay their fair share rather than expecting uh, consumers to pick up the tab on these programs, which are obviously essential, such as food stamps. What, what, well, I think the uh, in there? the book I talk about the success of the corporate consumption complex in framing the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think while I would agree that uh, uh, perhaps a majority of our elected officials are uh, reluctant 
to uh, bring about changes in the tax code. I don't think uh, that, uh, that that reflects the view of voters, and it really depends very much on how the question is asked. You know, the, the big picture belief is that anything that uh, uh, increases the power and authority of government is bad, reduces our freedom. Right. But I think the reality is that reducing the power of government doesn't increase the freedom and rights of individuals. It ends up increasing the power and ability of corporations to influence our political process. No and if question. you look closely at some of the polling data from the last decade or so, as I do in the book, it really depends very much on how the question is worded. And when you ask, should government protect our children from environmental illness, most people would favor spending, even spending more, on ensuring that their kids not uh, develop lung disease or, uh, or other serious health consequences sure. as a result of exposure to pollutants. Or if you ask uh, parents, do you want your kids to be protected from companies that put their health at risk by promoting uh, products associated with premature death? Most parents would say yes, but the corporations have been very successful in, uh, in, in framing the choice as one of individual freedom versus uh, the so-called nanny state. And mm -hmm. I think we public health folks, uh, food advocates, need to reframe those questions. And I think the questions aren't, the questions are who makes the rules and who decides. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be talking more about uh, community choice and communities having the right to say no to the imposition of environments where unhealthy choices are much easier than healthy choices. Such as fracking, for instance, would be a great, uh, a great that's, that's <laughs> industry one example, to like, or the really marketing of unhealthy foods of to course, yeah. young children who aren't capable of making decisions is another example. Well, here is, um, you talk, uh, you know what, we have to take, unfortunately, a short break because this is such a great discussion, but stay on the line. I'll be right back in like 30 or 45 seconds, um, but we have to do a little sponsor drop. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the core beliefs of the corporate because that's directly related to what we've been talking about. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You. Uh, I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with um, Dr. Nick Freudenberg, uh, the author of Lethal But Legal, Corporate Sorry, Corporations, Consumption, and Protecting Public Health. This is a barn burner of a book and uh, really should be required reading for every citizen. Um, so let's go back to this, uh, the corporate consumption complex and the selling of the core beliefs of said complex. Um, can you uh, sort of lay out for us what those core beliefs are? Because they tie in very much to what we've just been talking about in the first half of the program. Sure. Some examples that I describe in the book are first that uh, lifestyle is the main influence on health. It's in what individuals do, not what companies do, that results in health or disease. Right. Uh, second, 
they say that companies are producing what consumers want. If people didn't demand these products, people, companies wouldn't produce them. They say that education is the best solution for helping consumers to make better choices. And they say that advertising provides consumers with the information they need to choose wisely. <laughs> and what strikes me is when you read or hear these core beliefs, they sound so reasonable. They do. We think, of course that isn't true, is, you know, of course that makes sense. But that's in part because we've been so relentlessly exposed to these messages. But the reality, I would believe, all these core beliefs uh, are not supported by the evidence. That companies uh, do very careful research, and what they produce is what will make them money. And once they've decided that uh, a certain kind of product will make them money, then they figure out how to get people to want that. And I think a good example uh, comes from sports utility vehicles, yeah. uh, an automobile that was developed in the, and, and very heavily marketed in the late 1990s. Now, it turns out the profits on an SUV are five to ten times what they are in a sedan, a regular car. Wow. And so the automobile industry decided they could make a lot of money in SUVs. And in the late 90s, they spent about $9 billion marketing that vehicle and appealing not to our rational interests, but to our unconscious fears, to what the designer for Chrysler called our reptilian instincts. And you were, if, in the, if you were in this very big and high car, you would be able to run over any threat to you, uh, that you could use it to escape to the country, whether or not you actually ever left the city. And by appealing to our uh, primitive instincts, and this is true for the automobile industry, the food industry, the alcohol industry, they're able to bypass our rational thought and to convince us that we will be more of a man or more of a woman or a more, uh, more popular person mm -hmm. if we buy their products. Yeah. And yet they tell us that they're simply giving us what they want, what, we've, what we want and what we've asked for. Right. It's amazing. So now I want to just uh, to backtrack for a second because you alluded to the fact that they've done all this research to decide, you know, what is our reptilian instinct about X, Y, or Z product. And one of the things that I uh, have noted over and over again, particularly as I study the livestock industry, is just how much science has been co-opted by industry. And the livestock industry is a great example of that because they have many uh, distinguished scientists who still pretend that the jury is out on whether or not antibiotic resistance is caused by using too many antibiotics in the food system. And so <clears throat> I've really observed this in a, in a lot of ways throughout the food industry. And I wanted to just chat for a second about how do we bring science back into the public interest rather than having it funded, uh, even in university levels, universities are, are tremendous recipients of uh, funding from, you know, Merck and Elanco, uh, you know, all of the pharmaceutical companies, all of that stuff. They're just throwing money at these guys to fund these studies, which, you know, if you find out who paid for it, then you can pretty much predict the results, right? Yes. And so, I think, you know, in the in earlier times, in the late 19th and the uh, first part of the 20th century, science was used to uh, advance human well-being, the spectacular yes. advances in public health that came about in the last century were a result of using science and technology to get clean water to people, to get healthier right. food to people, Better to air, clean up the right. air. 
but what we've seen in the last few decades is increasingly, as you said, business has appropriated science and technology. And I describe in the book how the food industry has used evolutionary biologists, uh, neuroscientists, mm -hmm. uh, developmental psychologists, uh, marketing specialists to really appeal to our most primitive instincts uh, in order to convince us to buy products. And I think I, I, you're really right that we need to find ways to take science back, uh, that science should be used to advance the well-being of people, not to uh, bring more profits into these big companies. Right. And I think those of us like me who are based in the universities can do a lot to set a much stronger set of ethical standards, that mm -hmm. the research that we do belongs uh, to the public as a whole, and that the uh, uh, evolving rules around intellectual property rights and around patents that gives companies the right to hold on to knowledge that could be used to improve people's lives and prevent premature deaths, the notion that someone can hold that back from the public, yeah. uh, we, we need to challenge that in a very direct way. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So let's go on to... Um talk about challenging, to confronting and dismantling the corporate consumption complex. So how do we, you know, as a society, how do we persuade not only our own constituency here in the United States, but the global civilization, the global population? How do we convince everybody else that the path that we've been going down, that letting these corporations put refrigeration into tiny towns in India that don't even have, uh, you know, a telephone system or, or centralized electricity, but they will they will put in a generator that runs a refrigerator that sells Coke and Pepsi. I mean, how do we make and the Indians want it, you know, or whatever country it is. I mean, how do we convince the rest of the world that what we have is not that great and that we shouldn't be ceding control, uh, especially in developing nations, to these corporations, which will inevitably bring them so many of the same problems that we face here? Well, I think there's some good news, because what uh, writing this book showed me is that around the world there are thousands of organizations and millions of individuals whose, whose lives have been uh, negatively affected by corporations, whether on the health front or the environmental front or the economic or uh, democratic front, and they're working uh, to change the way that corporations do business. But the problem has been that those individuals and organizations have too much worked on their own, have too much looked at their issue mm -hmm. and not looked at how we can weave together these strands of activism. And that's really my prescription, that we need to look for uh, an, an agenda, a policy agenda, that could start to bring together those of us who are concerned about health, those concerned about the environment, those concerned about democracy and inequality. And in the book, I describe uh, some of the starting points for bringing that agenda together and helping the activism that's already taking place mm. to begin to uh, coalesce so that we can accumulate the power that will be needed to uh, take on the corporate consumption complex. I've and I think oh, sorry. a few of those common ground points are the... Uh, the importance of our children. I think yeah. the notion that many people are agree that corporations should not be targeting our children to sell them products that will contribute to ill health and premature death. 
I think also many people believe that corporations have an obligation to tell us what they know about the health consequences of their products. We saw with the tobacco industry that forcing them to disclose what they knew, as happened in the court cases, really changed the landscape in the kinds of laws that we were able to pass and the restrictions we were able to put on the right of tobacco companies to market their product as compared to the right of people to breathe clean air. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think the notion that this is a, a global issue, not a local issue, the successes of our fight against the tobacco industry here in the United States, as impressive as they were, we've cut the smoking rate in half here in the United States in the last several decades. But shame on us that we allowed the tobacco industry to use the same uh, manipulative, devious strategies that they developed in this country 40 and 50 years ago and applied them to Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Yeah. In the 20th century, 100 million people died prematurely from tobacco use. And the estimates are in the 21st century, it'll be 1 billion people, 1 billion people dying early because of tobacco. And most of those will be in uh, low and middle income countries. And we need to uh, find a way to change that future. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with you. Well, that and, might... and to make sure, if I can just say one more sure, thing, to make sure that we don't make the same mistake around food, that in our mm -hmm. correct desire to change the practices of the food industry here in the United States and their targeting of children and their loading our food with precisely the fat, sugar, and salt that we know is associated with diet-related diseases, we need to make sure as we win victories in restricting uh, those practices, that we not let them uh, sell those products in other countries to poor people and thereby exacerbate the differences in health well, they, uh, they've between already the better done off it. and the poor. They're already doing it. I mean, Mexico has one of the highest obesity rates in the world, and it's largely because they drink so much Coke. And even yes, I just went to also Vietnam. Mexico recently was succeeded in imposing uh, a tax on sugary beverages, something cool. we've not succeeded yet here right. in the United States. Which is astonishing in itself. But, I mean, to give another example, I was recently in Vietnam, and uh, no matter how tiny the town, there was Coke, there was Pepsi, there was Fanta. I mean, it was like, I took photos for Marion Nessel, because she said, oh, take pictures of me of the Af And I, you know, I was astonished. In the smallest mountain town in the north of Vietnam, there's Coke and Pepsi. I mean, it was just, it was mind-blowing. Um, but I want to go on to something that you also brought up, which I thought was absolutely fascinating and so right on the money that, that said so much about our culture, and that was you note the infantilization of the consumer, and you use the Super Bowl ads as a fantastic example of, uh, you know, sh of appealing to our most childish uh, instincts. It was like, you know, showing boobs and fast cars for guys and kitties for girls or something. I, you know, I forget what examples were. But what, how do we make consumers stop, you know, responding to that kind of messaging and sort of take a more rational approach to what we are putting in our bodies or driving or buying or whatever? I, yes. mean, I, I thought well, that was really, really a great point about especially the United States, because we are with a question, the most infantile population I've ever encountered. I describe what I call the ideology of the corporate consumption complex being hyperconsumption, encouraging patterns of consumption that are associated with ill health. And what is striking is uh, how many people 
buy into hyperconsumption, despite the fact that almost all of us have at least one family member or person we love who has been affected by tobacco-related disease or alcoholism. Uh, alcohol problems mm-hmm. or diabetes or heart disease. And we've seen the terrible burden that these, the suffering and the pain uh, and the lost lives that these, uh, these diseases impose. And despite that, uh, people, people buy into this hyperconsumption. And I think the alternative is to really create a different uh, lifestyle and ideology, one of uh, health and sustainability. And it can't be a lifestyle that requires people to give up things. It has to offer another set of pleasures, another set of joys, another way of connecting to people. And that's a very tough task, but I think we're going to have a hard time succeeding unless we really evict that ideology from our minds, you know, from our schools, from our communities, from our shopping malls, and particularly from our political system, where the notion that hyperconsumption is the only way we can sustain our economy. Right, right. I talk about some specific ways I think we can do that in the book, Uh, and I think there have been some models of uh, different patterns of consumption that give people pleasure, that help people feel connected to people they care about and to communities. Uh, But that's, I think, what we need to do. Well, uh, we have only a few more minutes, and I want to get to what, to me, is one of the most important issues that you bring up in the book, and and it does come up over and over again, and that's lobbying. What can we do as a nation to curtail or otherwise regulate the amounts of money that corporations throw at lobbyists who then, uh, you know, throw themselves at at our elected officials, uh, obviously to very great effect? Um, Why can't we, uh, you know, on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the spectrum, uh, at least fund our own lobbyists to give an equally important message to said congressman or something. It's just like it's so unbalanced and it's so unfair because, I mean, honestly, if you're like the National Resources Defense Council or concerned scientists in the public interest, you don't have a prayer of getting the kind of traction that, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical company is going to get when he wines and dines and otherwise, uh, you know, works his magic on, you know, XYZ congressmen. So what what do you think can be done about lobbying? Is there any any way to regulate well, the amount of money? I think there, we need to work on two fronts. One is to, to be able to bring our own voices uh, to Washington and whether yeah. we do that by hiring our own uh, lobbyists, which some uh, advocacy organizations have done, or whether we develop the power of social media, which lets us uh, uh, bypass the expensive media of mm-hmm. uh, television and newspapers. So I think that's one strategy. But ultimately, I think we need to change the rules of the game. And that yeah. will require putting together a coalition that can contest the power of the corporate consumption complex. And I think for too long, people working in public health or people working in food or people working in the environment have thought that the uh, campaigns for uh, restricting lobbying and for campaign finance reform are somebody else's battle. But those are our battles. And if we can't... uh, shift the playing field, we're going to have a very hard time succeeding in achieving our health and environmental goals. So I think we need to really uh, be all in on, on the campaigns 
for changing the law around lobbying, for closing that revolving door between uh, business and government. Yes. And there are many uh, worthy proposals out, and they just don't yet have the political support. And that will require a long-term mobilization. And again, the good news is that these changes that we've seen came about in only a couple decades. And it was human decisions, political decisions Mm -hmm. that uh, corrupted our political system in the last 20, 30 years. And so it can be human decisions and political decisions that reverse that path. And that will require uh, a different level of mobilization. I think the new discussion as a result of uh, Occupy Wall Street and as a result of uh, the campaigns of uh, Bill de Blasio here in New York City and the uh, new book on capitalism by uh, Thomas Piketty have made many people interested in inequality, have made many people interested in why is it that the 1% have such a powerful voice in our society. So I think more people are open than was the case a few years ago, and we need to find ways to bring those people together and bring those voices into our political system. Yeah, and then we need to replace the Supreme Court. Or at least that some too. of them. <laughs> the Roberts Supreme Court, the most corporate-friendly Supreme Court in the history of this nation. Um, Nick, I want to thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, tell people where they can learn more about your book. If you have any speaking engagements in New York City, please let us know. Um, what, 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 where can people find out more about you? Do you have a website for Lethal But Legal? Yes, there's a, a website. It's www.lethalbutlegal, all one word, mm-hmm. .org www.lethalbutlegal.org and the book is available from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Oxford in both a hardcover and Kindle edition. Great. Uh, and at the website are some links to some of the places I've spoken about the book uh, recently. And we'll be speaking about you're going up to Vermont today, right? Yes, yes, I'm speaking this? at the Vermont Food Systems meeting uh, in Burlington on uh, Wednesday. That's great. Well, listen, thank you again for uh, joining me today, and I hope you'll stay in touch. I'd love to have you on again and again as a guest. You're just a wonderfully articulate uh, advocate for our, all of us, and I wish there were more people like you out there and publishing more books like this. This is mandatory thank so reading, thanks people. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed you our betcha. conversation. I'm so glad. Okay, thanks. And thanks to my sponsor. Thank you to my engineer. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for listening, folks. And uh, that's it for today. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.